Father, I thank you for this incredible season of the year. I thank you for the chance so many of us will have this coming week, just to pause from the normalness of life. And I pray you take a few moments to contemplate your arrival, your willingness to leave the glory and splendor of heaven, not because you need to, but because we need you. God, I, I do pray for the next few moments as we explore a familiar story. It, it is my prayer that you might help us to, to take something new this week and live it this coming week. For it's in your son's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Do you enjoy Christmas movies? I, I have two of my kids that as soon as Thanksgiving arrives, they want to watch
a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. As I was doing some studying this week, I found out that Charles Schultz was originally told he couldn't hear the reading of the Christmas story. And so he went back and he actually changed the movie. Subtly, but I would argue profoundly. In a way that I had never caught, and I'm guessing you hadn't. He rewrote the story. Linus always has a security blanket. And as he says, the angel said to them, fear not, you actually watch Linus drop the blanket. And Charles Schultz was making the point that in the 1960s, I, I know that we always have this amazing look at our time as the worst ever. Go back and read about the 60s. You have a president assassinated, somebody running for president assassinated. You have race riots. You have some of the hardest times in American history. And in the midst of that, fear was running rampant. And Charles Schultz's message was, the only place to be free of fear is when you find your people in the manger. If you have your Bibles, would you go with me back to the, the book of Matthew? Your pastor has been very gracious to me. Thank you again, Orville, for letting me choose this series and even give me the two best parts of the Christmas story to share. Yeah, he had to do the, the Wicked King back in, um, four weeks ago, the last week of November. He did Herod. I got a chance to do what I argued was the rightful king. And if you were here, I would make the case that, that Joseph was the one who was supposed to be on the throne. Last week, he had a chance to talk about the mysterious kings. This morning, I get a chance to talk about really the only true king of the Christmas story. Matthew begins to share the story this way. He says, this is how the birth of Jesus came to be. And I can see my fonts didn't get embedded. <laughs> Oops. Anyway, you're going to have to humor me because things aren't going to line up, so it's not going to look near as nice as it does on my computer. You come to my house this afternoon, and I'll show you what it's supposed to look like. The word birth is a fascinating word for a number of reasons. One of the struggles when you are taking one language into another language is you have to make decisions. And that word birth is actually the very same word that is in verse number one. The book actually begins with a biblion, a Bible of the origin. They translate it genealogy. And then from then on, he's going to take the verb form of that very same word, and he's going to say that, that Joseph was the father of. The father of is actually the very verb form of that word that gets translated genealogy and birth. The struggle is, when you come to verse number 16, and he's going to share that Jacob was the father of Joseph, you would assume he would say the father of Jesus, but he doesn't. He says, was the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. And so he says, well, then you must need to figure out exactly how did Jesus really come to be. And so he returns and he says, Jesus Christ came about this way. That his mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. I am convinced that if you are ever going to fully appreciate 
the scriptures. You need to go to the context. Because we forget sometimes that the Bible was written to real people facing real problems. It's fascinating that he doesn't say that he was born of God. Why is that significant? Well, in the first century, there were Greek myths. If you've ever done any reading of Greek myths, there was this common idea that a, a, a Greek god would take on human flesh and conceive a child with a mere mortal. Achilles, for instance, was married to a, a mother who was a god and a father who was a warrior and produced Achilles. But he's very careful. In fact, he mentions it twice, that it was the Holy Spirit from which Jesus was conceived. I think that's also kind of interesting for this reason. Can you think of any other time when the Spirit of God overshadowed a formless, void scenario to bring life? Well, let me bring my Greek. I don't like to bring my Greek, but I'm going to bring my Greek with me and translate the word birth. If you spell it, transliterate it, take the Greek letters into English, it's J-E-G-E-N-E-S-I-S. Hmm. I'm convinced that what John is wanting to do is to take you right back to Genesis chapter 1. And in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the shadow of the deep. And the Spirit of God hovered and he spoke life into existence. I am absolutely convinced that Matthew wants you to understand that this is not a normal birth. One of the real dangers, I am convinced, when you come to the passage is we want so badly to understand things that we try and bring it into modern life. In fact, a pastor who I respect tremendously was talking about uh, Jesus was the result of the Holy Spirit's seed and Mary's egg. I don't think that's the point at all. The Spirit of God hovered over Mary's womb and gave her something radically different. He spoke life into a lifeless form. But the virgin birth I'm convinced is one of the most important miracles in all of Scripture. For a couple reasons. I, I could spend a, a fair amount of time trying to develop the theology of why the virgin birth was important, but I, I think there's something more basic. <laughs> See, the virgin birth is going to reveal a great deal about you and what you think of God. Because the virgin birth is going to require your willingness to say that there is a being greater than I am who doesn't have to explain what he does to me in a way that I can't make sense of because I can't explain the virgin birth, nor can you. But am I willing to believe there is a God who from time to time decides to come and to interact in our world in a supernatural way? C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite authors, and my guess is most of you, when you hear the name C.S. Lewis, go instantly to the Chronicles of Narnia. But the reality is that C.S. Lewis was a genius. He taught at Oxford for most of his life. He was an authority, in fact, most would say was the living authority on ancient English literature. 
there's this wonderful story that I, I really enjoyed that one Christmas he was in his office with a fellow professor and they were talking when suddenly a group of carolers came outside of Dr. Lewis's office and they began to sing and they began to sing what I would argue is arguably the greatest Christological song ever written. Hark the herald angels sing. Let me just read a little bit of verse 2. Christ by heaven adore, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold, he came, offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the God had seen. I love that line. Veiled in flesh the God had seen. Hail the incarnate deity. But as they were singing the song, and the professor looked at C.S. Lewis and said, aren't you glad that, that we no longer have to believe such things? And C.S. Lewis said, uh, I'm sorry, what? Aren't you so glad that science has advanced to the point where we now know that virgin births are impossible? C.S. Lewis looked at him incredulously and said, don't you think they knew that? The virgin birth has always been a miracle. Are we willing to accept it as such? Because the moment the virgin birth is denied, I would suggest the rest of the gospel makes no sense whatsoever. Because you have removed the supernatural. And thus you have removed all that Jesus is. But he begins to say this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be a child of the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. A virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. For the few moments I have left this morning, I, I, I really do want to just take a second and, and examine the two names. Matthew is probably the hardest of the four gospel writers to understand for two reasons. Number one, he's going to assume you understand Jewish culture. You go to Mark and you go to Luke, they're writing to non-Jewish audiences and often they will explain something that's going on and saying this was the custom of the Jews, this is how the Jews did it. Matthew does none of that. He simply assumes you understand. But then he also assumes you have a rock-solid knowledge of the Old Testament. And I have to be honest, I fail far too often. And in order to really understand the story, I think it's going to take some understanding of both of those. For instance, he's going to say, I, I want you to name him Jesus. Well, uh, Jesus is an interesting name. In, in the Hebrew, it was originally Yehoshua. Eventually, it would get sh shortened to Yahshua. It would be brought into Greek, and they would then call it Jesus. It's interesting to me that somewhere along the line, we in English put a hard J on it and changed the name. It's now Jesus. I, I, the Spanish pronunciation is actually probably a whole lot closer, but, but we've changed it. But do you know what that means? It means Jehovah saves. Probably not a great surprise to you. 
In fact, it's the Hebrew name that we get Joseph from. But Matthew's going to introduce a tension because he's going to say his name shall be Jesus and he will save his people from their sins. Well, which is it? Is it Jehovah will save or the baby will save? The answer to that question is yes. And in the very opening passages of his gospel, he is going to confront you with this theological reality that humans have been struggling with ever since. I know that many in our world today would make the argument that Jesus never claimed deity. In fact, his early disciples never claimed he was divine. It isn't until you get to the third century that these third century Christians gave it to Jesus. And yet, if you understand the culture, if you understand the Hebrew, you understand that right here in the very opening verses, Matthew is confronting you with that Jehovah and the baby. See, in the first century, the Jews were longing for Messiah. They were under the, the oppression of the Romans. In fact, the whole Christmas story is caught up in this requirement that some guy a thousand miles away could simply say, you need to stop what you're doing right now, and you need to go back to your homeland. I don't care how far it is, you drop everything and go, because I want more of your money. That was the whole point. The Roman emperor could do whatever he wanted, and the Jews were entirely dependent upon him, and they longed for a political savior, an economic savior. But Jesus didn't come for that. There's this fascinating story. As you come to Luke chapter 4, Jesus has already started his miracles. He, he most likely has turned the water into wine at the wedding. He's probably done a number of other miracles. He, he's teaching as one who has authority, unlike the rest of the rabbis. And he goes back to his hometown, and he's given the intense and amazing privilege of getting to sit in the rabbi chair and to read the prophet scroll as they gather for synagogue. And he reads from the prophet Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Wow. We're all prisoners. That's awesome, Jesus. He, he said that he's going to give recovery of the sight to the blind. In the first century, there was no illness less healable than blindness. If you could heal blindness, you could heal anything. He's going to bring freedom politically. He's going to bring health. He's going to set the oppressed free. He's going to end poverty. And the Jews are for real. I guess I've got to stay back here. The Jews were thrilled with the reality that Jesus was coming to be this kind of Messiah. And they, in fact, when he's done, are thrilled. Jesus is the one. And then he does the unacceptable. He says, I've come to do this for everyone. And they pick up stones to kill. See, you have to be my kind of Messiah. You don't get to choose what kind of Messiah you are. But Matthew says he's come to save us from our sins. Are you a sinner? I, I, I must admit that in our modern world, the world's sin has largely left most of our vocabularies. We don't like to use the word. 
And if we do use the word, chances are really good that, that when we think of sin, what we think of are specific evil actions. The last book that I had a chance to preach through before I left Victor was the book of Romans. I didn't tackle it earlier in my ministry because I wasn't sure that I was ready to try and preach through the book of Romans. I was afraid that it would take the rest of my ministry. I got through chapter 12 before I left. So I guess in some sense it, it did. But the book of Romans is this fascinating, doctrinal, incredible book. And Paul begins in chapter 1 by saying the wrath of God is currently, right now, being revealed against all kinds of ungodliness and unrighteousness. And then at the end of chapter 1, he lays out those that we would all call our sinners. You know, the guys who blaspheme, the guys who make up new ways to do evil, the individuals who are encouraging others to do it. Of course they're sinners. He then moves to the religious, those of us who are in church every Sunday. Are we also sinners? And then he moves to God's chosen people, the Jews. And then in chapter 3, he moves to everyone. And he does so by saying, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. And now he's going to explain, he's going to defend that you're a sinner. And notice where he goes. Not to your deeds. He says, no one seeks after God. Be honest. Was every moment of every day last week consumed entirely with the pursuit of God? Or was there a moment where you were more interested in your life than what God wanted? And none of us, I hope none of us, could even begin to claim that every moment of all our lives is in constant pursuit of God. But that's the standard. That's the requirement. And then he moves from direction to words. He, he says, our throats are an open grave. Their tongues are deceived. Is there any one of us who would even begin to make the statement that you never once said a word you wish you could take back? You never once have said something to deceive another. You've never done one time where you spoke harshly towards someone when you weren't really expected to. It's our direction. Then our words. And then he talks about swift to shed blood. See, sin isn't just the evil I do. It's the direction I'm headed. It's the words that flow from my mouth. It's any time that I am not consumed entirely with God's will for God's glory through God's power. And even if you could this morning decide that you will never again have a waking moment that is not consumed with the pursuit of God. You will never again use your mouth to say anything evil. You will never again do an evil deed. What about all those past ones? We all are sinners. And the reason Jesus came was to save us first and foremost and eternally from our sins. See, the story of Christmas takes place because I need forgiveness. And so do you. But then he continues, and he says she'll give birth to a son. And then he goes back to the prophet, and it's interesting to me, he doesn't mention which prophet. Do you know why? Because you should know! <laughs> That's his point? Of course you know who said that! Isaiah said it. In chapter 7. In which he's going to say, the virgin will be with child, and she will give birth to a son, and you are to call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel now means God is with us. 
Can I take you on a 60-second trip through the Bible? Probably not, but I'll try. <laughs> if I could take you clear back to the book of Genesis, as God speaks, he, he says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you will read after every day, and then at the final day six, he will say, everything is very good. In the midst of that creation, the zenith of his creation is that he creates man and woman. He places them in this incredible garden. And while they're in this garden, he rests. And I know that most of us have this idea of rest being what you're going to do this afternoon. You'll plop down in your chair, you'll turn on a football game, and soon you'll be sound asleep. Because that's what rest is. That's not what biblical rest is. Because God never sleeps or slumbers. I would make the argument that rest is something way deeper. Rest is this perfect union between ourselves and God. And in the garden, there was a perfect relationship. God was with his people, and they could talk to him, and they could walk with him, and they had a chance to experience him. There was a perfect union between one another in what I would argue is the most shocking and most... Difficult verse for me to understand is chapter 2 and verse 25 where it says that Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. I don't get how that works because I have all kinds of shame. And so do you. But there was a time in which they were in perfect union with God. They were in perfect union with one another. And even more amazing, they were in perfect union with the creation around them. God had given this incredible privilege to care for it, to take care of it. And then you come to chapter 3. And in chapter 3, the serpent shows up, and he tempts Adam and Eve, did God really say, is God really interested in your good, or is he only interested in himself? And they decide they will define good and evil their own way. And in chapter 3, every relationship that exists is destroyed. The relationship between man and God is Damaged. The relationship between man and woman is damaged. The relationship we have with the planet, but maybe even worse, is that God has to remove himself. And that fellowship is gone. And I would argue the rest of the Bible is the story of God trying to return his presence to humanity. The Ten Commandments, the tabernacle where they could see his presence, the kings, eventually the prophets. And this amazing prophet that Matthew just quotes is in Isaiah chapter 7 in which he says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a son. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. And they will call his name Emmanuel. And the son never shows up. It just ends. We're longing for the son to come. But the son never shows up until Jesus of Nazareth. And the four Gospels share the story of God taking on human flesh to be with humanity, dying on the cross, and then gloriously rising from the dead and offering a new life and a promise of an eternal life. And the rest of the Bible shares this story of how God is making the old new, how he's re resurrecting life. And suddenly you get all these epistles that are written to share with what does it mean that God is with us until finally you come to the very last book. And John has this incredible letter that he writes. And much of it is confusing, but in the end of it, there's a verse that I'm guessing you've heard read at nearly every funeral you've ever attended. In chapter 21, verse number 4, it says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Because the old order is gone. That's horribly out of context. 
and God himself will be with us forever. Emmanuel is the reality that God longs to be with his creation, but the only way he can be with us is for him first to be Savior and to save us from our sins. And thus, as Matthew contemplates the arrival of Jesus, he is consumed with the reality that this baby is God's attempt to be with us again. It has incredible encouragement and challenge. But can I try and remove a little bit of the, the mystery of the Christmas story just for a second? Because, see, I, I fear that it's maybe the most familiar story. I'm guessing the vast majority of you could have stood up here this morning and told the Christmas story because you all know it. And we kind of mythologize the story. Can I rewrite chapter 2 just for a second? Last week, Orville talked about the, the Magi coming and bringing incredible gifts. And Mary and Joseph, who already endured an intense amount of pain, they had to leave while Mary was heavy with child. And I know all of the pictures have her coming in a, a, a donkey, but come on, let's be realistic. If you can't even afford a sacrifice and can only bring two pigeons, you probably don't have a donkey. She probably walked the 80 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem because she had to. And she gives birth and... Lays the baby. I know that we have the whole image of the stable. It doesn't say a stable. It just says she was laid in the feeding, Jesus was laid in the feeding trough of common animals. It may have been out under the stars. We have no idea. But then they seem to finally get settled and they get this lovely gift. And things begin to look up. And then that angel shows up again. And he says to Joseph, Right now, get up, go! And he has to wake Mary, and in that moment, you flee 300 miles to a place you've never been, in a land you do not speak the language, you know no one. And as you're going, you hear the story. Herod came, and he killed every baby boy. Mary, you're responsible for the death of dozens, if not hundreds of kids, because they were looking for your baby. How do you deal with You're going to be faced with circumstances that you really didn't choose and wish you could avoid. How do you get through it? One way. Emmanuel. God is with us. See, the story of Christmas is so much more than I fear we often make it. It is the story that God chose to leave the splendor and the glory of heaven to come as a baby to die for your sins because you needed a Savior. And to promise an eternity in His presence forever. And today, to be your Emmanuel. It is my prayer, it is my hope that each of us understands the joy of sins forgiven and the comfort of Emmanuel. Father, I, I thank you for the chance to go through a story that all of us have Yet it is the story that we all need so desperately. We are sinners. 
we have offended you and cannot make peace on our own. But you came to save us from our sins. And you came to be with us. God, I, I pray this week that you would encourage everyone here that you are indeed Emmanuel.